0: Hello, Malcolm here, with a brief introduction to tonight's class. Chris Bertles is teaching the second of his four-part series, Narrow Road, Broad Mind. I just wanted to say something about the purpose of these classes. These classes are not devotional in nature, though they will have spiritual benefit for you, I'm sure. Uh, we're having devotionals in the weeks in between the classes, but the purpose of this class is more of a, well, a pure teaching perspective and indeed particularly to help us in, with apologetics. They're apologetic in nature, by which I mean they're equipping us to, uh, to not only interpret the Bible better for ourselves, but to help other people understand the Bible better and to remove blocks in people's understanding or thinking such that they can engage with what the Bible is actually teaching rather than what they think it teaches and indeed what we think. It teaches. The class series is aimed at helping us to think clearly about what we claim the Bible says to be true, especially when we may find contradictory evidence from archaeology or science towards the Bible. So this will help you when you encounter sceptics with questions about creation, about evolution, about archaeology, about the cosmology, about all kinds of things. These classes will equip you. And so when you're listening to tonight's class, do your best to listen to it from that perspective, of how is this going to help me to answer the questions that sceptics of the Bible have. I think that will help us with tonight. It'll help us to know how to better answer reasonable arguments for and against scripture. The next class is in two weeks time. We're having devotionals in between, so we know what's coming up. And with that in mind, I pass you over into the safe hands of Chris Bertels. Hello, this is Chris.
1: Thank you for watching. This is the second class in my series, Narrow Road, Broad Mind. And today's class is called Creation, Why Not How. So last time we saw that archaeologists generally reject the Bible as historically reliable, based on two interpretations of biblical passages. But David Roll, an Egyptologist, has applied uh, different interpretations to these two passages, which provide harmony between the Bible and the archaeological footprint, demonstrating the problem is neither the Bible nor the archaeology, but rather how the Bible has been interpreted. So the key to this apparent conflict was a circular argument. The Bible was interpreted that, as it appears, misinterpretation, is then used to disprove the Bible. Some Christians in fact use a similar circular argument in relation to Genesis. So we hear arguments like the cosmos was created in seven days because the Bible says it was. So what's happening is they're taking a particular interpretation of Genesis 1, implying that there was a literal seven-day creation. When this interpretation is found to conflict with the scientific evidence, the science is rejected. But this interpretation is only correct if it is one that the original author intended. Faith in the Bible is a uh, obviously fundamental to us as Bible believing Christians, the fundamental belief that the Bible is inspired as God's word to us and therefore questioning how we interpret the Bible can feel like not a question of interpretation but rather a question of everything the Bible stands for. It feels like compromise because it feels like we're trying to uh, compromise the uh, inspiration of the bible in order to fit the world to the convenience of the world but i think it's important to realize that when we make statements if we make statements like evolution is not compatible with the bible that really what we should be saying is evolution is not compatible with a certain interpretation of the bible and the class next week is entitled would you adam and eve it? and i thought i'd just google that to see what it came up with and was quite surprised to find it came up with this article on the BBC from 2005 by Stephen Tompkins, a Christian author you may have come across. And it's talking about the, as it's highlighted at the bottom, growing number of British Christians who are defying Darwinist orthodoxy, i.e. evolution, in favour of creationism. And uh, it goes on to describe how the Uh, Evangelical Alliance, a body to which a lot of evangelical churches are affiliated, um, carried out a survey of of its membership and found that, again as it says highlighted, one third of those surveyed believe Adam and Eve were created within six days of the start of the universe. And then he goes on to uh, focus on a particular um, advocate of these types of literalist views, Dr Monty White who says there is not a shred of real evidence for the evolution of life on earth and he takes a complete opposite view to most people saying that believing in ev- evolution is uh, is just a choice people make but rejecting it is a matter of faith in the bible and he says as highlighted evolution is not compatible with christianity so Two questions I think we have to ask ourselves. First of all, is what Monty White is saying, i.e. that evolution and other scientific evidence is at odds with the Bible and must therefore be rejected, is that a faithful stroke biblical approach? And secondly, why might our interpretation be incorrect, our interpretation of the Bible? So, dealing with this question of is it a faithful approach, Let's look in uh, Matthew 11, where we're uh, looking at John the Baptist in prison. And it says, now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So he's in prison and he's evidently questioning now whether Jesus really is the Messiah or why Jesus is behaving in the manner he is he doesn't appear to be the Messiah or not acting in the way that John anticipated and though a prophet he doubts and so he sends his disciples to question Jesus now what's interesting is how Jesus responds does Jesus rebuke him for a lack of faith pull yourself together John just believe you know what the the word the spirit has told you no what it says is Jesus responds To John's disciples go and tell John what you hear and see the blind receive their sight the lame walk the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised and the poor have good news brought to them and Jesus here appears to be pointing to the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 35 then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped then the lame shall leap like a deer So what we see here is Jesus is not simply demanding blind faith. He's not saying, you know the truth, just stick with it. He's saying, look at the scripture, look at what you're seeing me do. See the two are in absolute harmony. What I'm doing is uh, a corroboration with the scriptural prophecy that demonstrates that I really am the Messiah and I'm acting as the Messiah should be. So it's appealing uh, appealing to a harmony between scripture and the evidence that they can see with their own uh, eyes. And we see this same idea of uh, an affinity between creation and God's word expressed uh, by David in Psalm 19. So he starts off, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So the beauty and grandeur of nature speaks loudly of the glory of God, but then he goes smoothly into the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. He's not gone into a su- different subject matter as far as he's concerned. For David, both nature, creation and God's word are both expressions of God's glory. So going back to this issue of, is it a faithful response? Is rejecting scientific evidence because it contradicts the Bible a faithful response? What we see in these two scriptural passages, and if we think that God is the author of both nature and scripture, there should not be a conflict between the Bible and science, between the worldly evidence we can see and experience with our senses, both are from God. So my suggestion is, this is where the broad mind comes in, that if there is a conflict, or if there appears to be a conflict between Scripture and science, we need to ask more questions about our interpretation of the Bible before we reject the science, because we should consider, could our interpretation be wrong? Which brings us on to the second question, why might our interpretation be wrong? Well, as I said, discussing um, Stonehenge in the first class, we're so far removed from the ancient world, it's very difficult to find definitive answers, because we are speaking a different language, we have a different culture, and a different worldview. And they make it all very difficult to see the world as the ancients, as people like Moses, the author of the the Torah, um, saw the world. It's so different for us. And a man who's really focused his uh, career on dealing with this, and um, he's an evangelical Christian, and it's his mission to try and demonstrate that there isn't a conflict between the Bible and science. And uh, he specializes in texts of the ancient Near East which includes um, biblical texts, other Jewish texts, and those of Mesopotamia and Egypt for example. And uh, he says that it's important for us to recognize that although scripture is written for us, it is not written to us. If it was written to us, it would be in English or whatever your first language is. I've read this uh, book. He's written a, a lot of books on uh, the ancient Near East, but there's a series called The Lost World of, and the one that relates to two and Genesis 2 and 3 is this one, uh, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. But the, the general picture he has is that we have to grasp when we're thinking about scripture, that what we're reading is a translation. And if we tried to read the Hebrew, we wouldn't understand it. And the culture of the ancient world would be just as alien to us as the language. So we need help in trying to understand it. And just as an illustration, there's a picture here of a restaurant called La Fromagerie. This was a in a Swiss mountain village called Les Sains, where we went on holiday, getting on for 20 years ago now. And uh, inside La Fromagerie, you can see it's very traditional, quaint. And uh, there's Caroline uh, stirring the cheese alongside my twin sister, Jane. And the menu in La Fromagerie was all in French, which for the most part, wasn't a problem, because Caroline's actually very good at speaking French. And uh, she was able to translate it all for, for me and, and, and Jane apart from one item and the owner was pretty good at English, so generally we were able to uh, converse quite easily. But this one item, not only could Caroline not understand the French, she couldn't remember what the English equivalent was. So she tried to describe what this was by saying it's bigger than a fox and it's smaller than a horse and uh, it turned out it was venison and uh, we got there in the end. But imagine if God tried to communicate to Moses by using an unfamiliar language and images that weren't quite familiar to him and there was lots of pointing and gesticulating going on. It wouldn't make the Bible uh, a very reliable document. So God had to bear in mind when he communicated with Moses the language and imagery that were familiar to Moses the limitations of Moses' knowledge and awareness of the world, and what message he wanted to convey. Now this is just an example of what um, John Walton calls cultural rivers which affect our uh, The commonality from a particular society of our cultural experience which embeds itself in the type of imagery and illustrations that we use and for those of you who like me were brought up in uh, this country in the 1970s you will no doubt recognize this as part of your cultural river as well pew pew barney mcgrew and some of you will be uh, reciting the names that follow but those of you who come from a different cultural river will probably have no idea what I'm talking about. So if I were to go on and make illustrations using uh, Trumpton, Chigley, Camboyt Green, it would be completely useless because you wouldn't know what I was talking about. This is actually what I was talking about. Pew Pew Barney McGrew Cuthbert Dibble Grub, the brave men of the Trumpton Fire Brigade, which was, uh, part of Watch with Mother that we used to watch at uh, lunchtimes and uh, has a cherished place in many of our hearts. So Moses cosmology and in fact the cosmology for the world in general for another 3,000 years after Moses looked pretty much like this. So you have uh, a flat earth covered with a dome um, and above this dome is the the waters being held back and above that the Heavens. And this is something that we have to consider when we say we reject evolution because it doesn't agree with the Bible. Are we then going to say that we accept this model of the cosmos because that's what's in the Bible? That's the d- issue we have to have. Do we say, because I don't think many people today, there are some, but I don't think many people today believe that the cosmos actually looks like that. And the what the system that most of us um, respect now is called the Copernican solar system and uh, it was first proposed by Copernicus in 1514, basically that we live in a solar system in which the Earth and other planets revolve around the Sun, orbit the Sun. Uh, but when he first proposed this in a, a periodical in 1514 it was deemed by most christians to be contrary to scripture particularly this verse in chronicles the world is firmly established it shall never be moved so there's no way it's orbiting round the sun and even martin luther ironically who was broad minded when he looked at catholic orthodoxy he was prepared to question it and go to to great lengths to challenge it but in response to this copernican um solar system he said the fool i.e. copernicus wants to turn the whole art of astronomy upside down. However, as Holy Scripture tells us, so did Joshua bid the sun to stand still and not the earth. So this is another example of a circular argument. Luther rejects the Copernican solar system based on his interpretation of Joshua 10. But few would now reject the Copernican system. Most of us accept the solar system and what if Luther had had the opportunity to reconsider his interpretation? We have um, a lot more ability to look back at ancient texts because we have so many um, tablets from cuneiform tablets from Mesopotamia, which give us a much greater insight into the thinking of the ancient world, and so it's much easier for us to to look at their worldview and understand it better than someone of his time before archaeology had uh, had started. Um, But there is another alternative interpretation of what happened in Joshua 10, when the sun stood still. And it's uh, recently, about three years ago, um, a paper was produced by Professor Sir Colin Humphreys who wrote this excellent book on the right, The Mystery of the Last Supper. Basically, he's a a Cambridge University scientist, obviously a very successful one to to be called Professor Sir. And uh, he likes in his spare time to try and provide scientific support for biblical uh, incidents. And he considered um, an alternative interpretation, which has been proposed by a number of commentators, that from an ancient perspective if you say the sun stopped they wouldn't be thinking of it standing still in the sky rather they would think about it as it would stop shining because as Genesis 1 says the sun and moon were lights that was their function that was the main focus of the ancients so if you say the sun stopped it means the light's gone out and the suggestion has been that this is indicating a solar eclipse so actually what this story would be about would be that rather than Uh, extended daylight from the traditional interpretation, it would mean premature darkness from uh, an eclipse. And he, with his colleague Graham Waddington, um, produced a program that would uh, be able to pinpoint any solar eclipses in this relevant area. And in a a 500-year scan that would have accommodated all the potential dates for the conquest, they found only one what's called an annular, a full solar eclipse, and that was in 1207 BC. And when I was preparing the class for last week, just before Christmas in fact, um, I, th- I was lying in bed and I remembered this paper. And I quickly googled the, uh, the date and I was crestfallen when I saw 1207 BC because that doesn't fit in with the Davy Roll dates that we looked at in the first class. And uh, I wondered if this had just blown the whole theory out the window, and indeed, the orthodox dating was more accurate, albeit it's about twenty years out from the orthodox date. But without any ability to question the validity of that um, of Humphreys and Waddington's find, um, I thought I'll Google and try and see if anyone else has questioned it. And I found that somebody did. But somebody suggested that was questioning why did they only look for an annular eclipse? Because a partial eclipse would have had the same impact if there was sufficient cloud cover. Now, in this distance in time, it would normally be very difficult to say whether or not there was any cloud cover at all, but it just happens that the narrative helps us here because in Joshua ten eleven 11, it says, as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the slope of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down huge stones from heaven on them as far as Azekar, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the Israelites killed with the sword. So, if we've got that kind of weather, there's a strong suggestion that we had dark cloud cover. And this uh, proponent of this alternative theory said that there was, in fact, in 1406, the date the Bible would actually say that the conquest took place, there was a partial eclipse in this area that would have had the same impact. So, getting back to the message that God is trying to convey to Moses. So, God had to convey communicate that message that chosen message using words and imagery that Moses would understand and it's important for us to differentiate the message God intends to convey from the language and imagery used to convey it so what I mean is when we look at something like that cosmology and say well that cosmology that's in the bible what's that doing there because it's not the right cosmology we have to say well is that the message this is what the cosmos looks like Or is that cosmos simply being used as a vehicle to convey the message that God is trying to convey to Moses? So is the cosmology part of the message? So this is our whole cultural river problem. If we impose our modern language, imagery and worldview on ancient scripture, we are likely to misinterpret it. It's therefore sensible to have a broad-minded approach, to be willing to consider other uh, approaches, other interpretations, and also to be accommodating of other people's uh, interpretations. Not to just dismiss them out of hand doesn't mean you have to accept them, but to, to be willing to see that maybe there are other plausible theories as well. So here is the, the conflict that is generally considered to, to be evident between the uh, scientific evidence and the Genesis account of creation in basic numbers, so the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago, the Earth 4.5, Homo sapiens 200,000 years ago, then in Genesis 1 the Sun, Earth and humans all created in six days just 6,000 years ago. Huge difference in the story being told. But what, this is where we must consider what is the image, what is the message that God is conveying in Genesis 1 and 2. So, in the very first two verses of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this word created is, is, uh, is bara in Hebrew, and in the Torah it's used exclusively of Yahweh, of God. And it has a similar meaning to our word from create. It's taking something from a state of nonex- non-existence to a state of existence. So where does the scientific account begin? It begins with nothing followed by the big bang. Genesis, where does that begin? The earth is already formed, it's already covered in water, but it's shrouded in darkness. So in the scientific account, this is like eight billion years after the big bang. It doesn't appear to be starting at the beginning. It doesn't start off God created the world the first thing God creates is light around the world that's already in existence. So in material terms, this is not the beginning. But what does non-existence look like? If non-existence isn't material, it's not about nothing being there, what is non-existence in Genesis? Well, it's without form and waste. So very strongly there seems to be this suggestion right at the very start of the Bible that Genesis Genesis is not concerned with material construction but with order and function, very much the uh, ancient worldview. So Moses' cosmology then is simply a vehicle to describe how God ordered the cosmos. The cosmology is not the message, it's a vehicle through which God is conveying his message which is about how he ordered the cosmos, how he brought the cosmos into harmony with his will. So if God is the source of order, then in spatial terms, this suggests sacred space. If God's involved, it's sacred. And note that the account of creation is about the heavens and the earth. It's not God was in heaven and he decided to create the earth, but it's about God creating the heavens and the earth. So is there any suggestion in Genesis that we are looking at sacred space? And This gets us on to the idea of the seven, why a seven day creation? If creation really took billions of years, why would the Bible tell us it took seven days? Well, this is just a a general uh, idea from the ancient world, which is all associated with temples and sacred space. An example being in Ugaritic creation myth about the construction of Baal's temple, the construction took seven days. In uh, an actual king of Samaria, King Gudia, who was in the 22nd century BC, uh, his he had a dedication ceremony of seven days. Likewise, 12 centuries later, Solomon had a seven-day inauguration in the seventh month for the temple he had constructed for God. So seven days, A seven-day creation suggests a temple is being constructed. If God wants to get the ancients of Moses' contemporaries to be thinking about sacred space, then talk about seven days, and that's what they will think about. So more examples of seven and uh, associated ideas with the temple theme. Solomon's speech in dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8 involves seven petitions. The construction took seven years. Another example, the Feast of Tabernacles takes seven days in the seventh month. So why, if there is a temple theme, why is there a temple theme? We have to think here about the situation in which Genesis is being written. This isn't just God giving Moses a potted history of what's gone on up to this point. We have to think The context here is that the Hebrews have just come out of centuries of slavery in Egypt and are embarking on a new covenant relationship with God centered around the tabernacle. So they quickly have to organize themselves into a society with Yahweh in their midst. So God is telling the story of creation to Moses in a covenant tabernacle context. Why? Because he wants to bless them, but they must, like Adam and Eve, choose obedience or disobedience. And we know Adam and Eve chose disobedience, and it all went wrong. And this is the choice facing the Hebrews. And just to see this, um, how this creation tabernacle uh, parallel comes out, you can see in the language of the Genesis creation and in the language of the tabernacle construction, there are common linguistic traits. So. In Genesis, we get the seven day creation. In the uh, case of the tabernacle, we get seven speeches, all beginning, the Lord spoke to Moses. On The seventh day, Yahweh rests. In the seventh speech that Moses makes from speaking the words of God, the last one, the seventh one, is about Sabbath observance. And in Genesis, God makes uh, a decree, such as, let there be light. That's followed then by An execution report such as, and it was so, that occurred seven times. In Exodus, with the tabernacle, it says, just as the Lord commanded. Another execution report, and that again occurred seven times. Also, the agent through which both were created. In Genesis 1, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. That wind from God in Hebrew is Elohim Ruach. And then in Exodus 31 relating to the tabernacle, See, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with divine spirit. Again, the Hebrew for that is Elohim Ruach. So the agent of both is exactly the same. There's clear pointers going on here. So the message God's concern is not to provide a scientific explanation of the cosmos, Rather, it is to order these freed slaves into a society in a covenant relationship through which he will provide for them. But they must understand that in order to flourish, they must be obedient to their creator. So we have here in Genesis, not a house story, but a home story. This is a brilliant analogy made by John Walton. So a house story is about how. What's, what's it the house made of? Uh, who built it? Um, what construction techniques are involved etc whereas a home story is about who's going to live there what they're going to do inside it and science provides us the house story genesis provides us the home story they're simply not in context and when does the house become a home like the temple of solomon it only became uh, it's a building waiting to become a temple until god's glory enters into it when it becomes the 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 dwelling place the resting place of God so when does a house become a home when God rests inside it and we see this expressed in uh, one of the Psalms of Ascent like Malcolm's been talking about in Psalm 132 where uh, David is celebrating the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem and it says let us go to his dwelling place let us worship at his footstool. Rise up, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So the tabernacle was both God's dwelling place and resting place. So if we go back to Genesis and think about God resting, it doesn't just mean that God's relaxing because he's been working hard for the week, but rather God has taken up residence in his dwelling place and is then presiding over the or the environment which is now in a state of order so the climax of creation then is the 7th day not the 6th day we tend to have this picture that the the making of humankind on the 6th day that's the pinnacle of creation and after that god can then take the next day off and rest but think about matthew 11:28 come to me all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. As John Walton says, Jesus isn't inviting people to have a lie down here. He's inviting them to come into the kingdom of God and participate in the ordered environment, the environment that is in harmony with God's will, an environment that allows you to be the human as God intended us to be. So is there then truly a conflict between Genesis and science? Whilst none of this is definitive, um, it takes account of Moses' worldview and would appear to remove the conflict with science simply by recognizing that Genesis isn't attempting to provide a scientific account. Um, It is not a scientific narrative. So next time we'll go on to another highly contentious Issue which is concerning human origins. Uh, Is it a creation or evolution as it's um, generally pictured? Um, Looking at Adam and Eve, are they really the first two humans or was there a much longer process of evolution? Some of you, I think, are going to be uh, having watched this together. Having a, a discussion and i 've put some questions there that you may like to use in order to um, to give you something to uh, focus on um, that 's entirely up to you lastly just wanted to say that uh, three years ago I did a series called God with us and it the first class from Eden to the New Jerusalem looked at the th- kind of things we 've been looking at today um, concerning sacred space the Eden as temple and such like but within the context of the whole Bible rather than just in the context we've looked at today within Genesis and Exodus. When I did that series the recording of the first class was corrupted so it's never been posted anywhere so I thought I'd take the opportunity with the technology we've got um, available to us now to uh, make a new recording of it um, which Malcolm will post so if you want to see it in the wider context please go ahead and look at that. Otherwise. I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.
0: So that's tonight's class. I hope you found something meaningful from it. I'm just going to repeat the questions that Chris gave us for discussion and feel free to broaden the discussion beyond these but I'll put them on the screen as well. The questions uh, he offered at the end for discussion were these four questions. What changes did you need to make to your worldview to become a Christian? He's reflecting there on the fact that uh, as much as we needed to change our worldview to become a Christian, we also need to change our worldview even as Christians at times as we learn new things. But that reminder of what changed then can help us to remember we need to sometimes make similar changes as we mature in Christ. But that's the first question. Secondly, In what ways did Jesus reinterpret orthodox views? Jesus did disturb the orthodoxy of his day. Thirdly, why does questioning our interpretation of the Bible feel like compromise? Mm. We've all grown up with assumptions about the Bible and we've come into God's kingdom with assumptions. We We need to rethink those assumptions from time to time when new evidence comes our way, scientific, archaeological or whatever. And why does it feel like compromise? is it compromise? Something to think about. Fourthly, is it important to be broad or open-minded about the Bible? And I suppose nested within that question is the supplementary question of what does it mean to be broad-minded or open-minded or open-minded but not open to anything and any what anybody says? So how do we navigate that challenge of keeping an open mind to new understanding without just being a victim to whatever anybody says that sounds persuasive. So those are the questions from Chris. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Do send us some comments if you like. Send them to me or to Chris if you need an email address. Send it to me, malcolm at malcolmcox.org and I'll pass them on to Chris and then we'll have Chris's third class in two weeks time. Until then, take care and God bless.